say, Vanessa, can you pull that door shut for me there? Thank you. Well, great to see you today. I know that you uh, undoubtedly have your Bible with you. If you don't, there's one near you. There's one on every row in the pew there. We are continuing our march through the Gospel of Mark, of course. As you already know, if you have been with us any time in the last few months, uh, we are in chapter 6 again today. But before we read our main text... I would like you, if you would, just hold your finger there in Mark 6. Look at the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans in chapter 8. It's a very famous passage. Students of Scripture refer to it regularly. And you have heard me read portions of it to you on many, many occasions. But there is one section of this beautiful passage of Scripture that we have not unpacked in a lot of detail. But it kind of pertains to our text in the Gospel of Mark, so I'd like to begin there today, if I could, with you just briefly. Romans chapter 8, everyone knows the wonderful passage there at the end, if God is for us, who can be against us, and so forth. Look at verse 35, if you would. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... None of that, of course, can separate us from the love of God. As it is written, and he is quoting uh, from the book of Psalms and chapter 44. He says, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You know, we all want the good guys to win. The entire Hollywood action movie industry is based on the idea that the good guys always win in the end. The good guy beats up the bad guy, the good guy blows up the bad guy, the good guy gets the pretty girl, and the bad guy gets what's coming to him for all of his nastiness. Uh, We we want justice, we like justice, we hate injustice, we hate the feeling that something is unfair, we always want the good guys to win, and we think that they should, because it's only right that good should triumph over evil. We all have this inward sense of right and wrong, and we want good to triumph over evil. And if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we know from the Word of God that God does ultimately win. Sin will be judged. Injustice will be corrected. Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire. The righteousness of God will triumph over evil in the end. But we also know that evil is all around us and wickedness is all around us. And the the curse of sin affects our society, it affects our government, it affects our educational system, it affects us sometimes in very personal ways. And so here in this passage, we haven't really looked at it a lot, but verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for for, for the slaughter. That doesn't sound like the good guys are winning. Quoting from Psalm 44, the Apostle Paul reminds us that there will be times, there will be times when it seems like we are sheep headed for the slaughter. Yet we can never be separated from the love of God. Even in those kinds of circumstances, we can never be separated from the love of God. We are more than conquerors, Paul writes through him who loved us, because we do ultimately win in the end. 
Jesus and the apostles all very clearly preached that there will be times when it appears that God and good are not winning. Case in point, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. It appeared that evil, it appeared, of course, we know the end of the story, so it doesn't appear that way to us. But if you were there living through that, it would appear that that evil was on this unstoppable rampage. And the disciples, after Jesus was crucified, they were hiding behind locked doors, thinking that the Lord Jesus was dead and gone. And everything that they had done and believed in was over. But Sunday came, and our resurrected Lord and Savior changed everything. But remember last week when I read to you the words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples from Matthew 10, where Jesus said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men. They will hand you over to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. And when they hand you over, he says, don't worry about what you say. It will be given to you in that hour what you're going to say, because it's not you who speaks. It is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Even your own brother will deliver you up to death, Jesus said. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all men because of my name. Jesus said in another passage in John 15, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul wrote, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of God. The entire letter that we call 1 Peter is aimed at helping us to know how to endure troubles victoriously by the grace of God. You see, God guides us, God directs our steps, God opens doors of mercy, He provides for our needs, He blesses us in many, many ways with His abundant grace. But God has never promised to protect us from everything. That is one of the heresies of modern theology in certain circles. That if you are in God's hands, you are immune from any troubles of life and you will be protected from everything. That is not true. That is not biblical. The verse that's often quoted is Isaiah 54, 17. I see it all over Facebook from time to time. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. I see that many times. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. I see it come up periodically when people using it as some sort of a mantra when hard times come, or some kind of claim that nothing can hurt them because they've used this verse as a protection. Well, I don't want to pop anybody's bubble, but that passage and that promise is for Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. And if you read the whole chapter carefully, you will very clearly see that. God does protect us from many, many things. And in His grace, He often preserves us from the results of our own foolishness. Through His abundant grace, He frequently rescues me from my own stupidity and stubbornness. But God has never promised to protect me from everything bad in this life. 
This is a sin-cursed world. We are sin-cursed people. And God has never promised to protect us from hardship and troubles. Jesus told His disciples in John 16, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus said He would always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Do not be afraid. So when trouble comes, and when heartache hits us, and when loss crushes our hearts, and when injustice seems to win, we rest in the plan and purposes of God because He has not forsaken us. He has not turned His back on us. He said to expect these kinds of things. And He told His disciples in Matthew 10 that these things would happen for His name's sake as a testimony to the unbelieving world. So now to our text here in Mark. We want to read today here in this section of Mark 6. We're going to start in verse 14, go to verse 29. We want to read for you today the murder of John the Baptist. Unjust, wicked, ungodly, but the murder of John the Baptist. John chapter 6. We'll start to read in verse 14. John 6 and verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, meaning the Lord Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it is the prophet. Those of you who are with us in Bible study this morning, there's another reference to it. It is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. There was an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, big meat platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. I want to talk to you a little bit about this story, then I'll give you a few closing principles at the end. But first, I want to give a little bit of background about Herod. Herod is a title rather than a name. There are several men with that title in the New Testament. 
You remember that Israel, some of you know the history of the time, remember that Israel had come under Roman authority many, many years before this. The Romans kind of had regional rulers who served under Caesar and under his authority. If Caesar didn't like them, they got replaced or exiled or executed. So all these governors, we might call them, were quite paranoid about staying in Caesar's good graces. They often called themselves kings to elevate themselves, as we saw in the passage here. Now, Mark referred to Herod as King Herod. He was not really a king. He was just a governor under Caesar, but they often used that term king uh, just to elevate themselves. The first Herod that we see in the New Testament is Herod the First, or he called himself Herod the Great. Herod the Great had ten wives over the course of his life. He'd get tired of one, he'd have her murdered and go get another one. So with all of his offspring from his ten wives, there were a number of sons who wanted his position when he died. Herod the Great was the Herod who was governing Israel for Rome when Jesus was born. It was Herod the Great who ordered the execution of all the baby boys two years old and under in the region of Bethlehem in an effort to kill what he viewed as his potential competition. You remember the wise men said, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. You remember that part of the Christmas story, I'm sure. Herod the Great is the one who did that. Herod the Great was not a Jew. He was a descendant of Esau. But he had attached himself to the Jewish people, and on the surface, he acted like a convert to Judaism, and he, he was given to the rule of the whole land of Israel under Rome, a position he held for 36 years. He was an evil, lustful, vicious murderer, but he played up to the Jewish leaders, and he was the one responsible for the huge expansion of the temple in Jerusalem during his rule. That was the temple that existed during the lifetime of Jesus. They called it Herod's Temple. In his will, Herod requested that Rome would divide the kingdom, Israel and the surrounding region, into four parts, and give a part to four of his sons whom he named in his will, and that's what happened. When Herod the Great died, Joseph and Mary returned from Egypt with Jesus, who was now a toddler. But the political scene had changed. Herod had been a ruler of the unified Israel. Now it was split into four parts. Three of the four sons whom Rome appointed over the divided region of Israel didn't last very long. They were either murdered or they died or they got deposed by Caesar and replaced by somebody else. In fact, one of the regions of Herod the Great's divided kingdom ended up being governed by the now famous Pilate who presided over the trial of the Lord Jesus during the four years that Pilate was governing. But one of Herod the Great's sons called Herod Antipas, he ruled for 42 years throughout the entire lifetime of the Lord Jesus after Jesus returned from Egypt. Herod Antipas is the Herod that is mentioned here in Mark chapter 6. He is the Herod who appears during the trial of the Lord Jesus. He is the Herod who is referred to in all of the Gospels, Herod Antipas. Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12, who ordered the execution of the Apostle James and then the arrest of Peter, he was a nephew of this Herod Antipas. And he was the brother of Herodias, this woman in our passage here. Herod Agrippa II, to whom the Apostle Paul witnessed in Acts chapter 26. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So four different Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great, uh, when, when Jesus was born, Herod Antipas, who's all through the Gospels. 
Herod Agrippa, his nephew in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa II, who Paul witnessed to in Acts 26. Just for historical interest, I looked up this week at the family tree of Herod the Great. It is so confusing and complex. I hope I didn't totally confuse you with all that, but it is so incredibly confusing and complex, the reason being because of all the adultery and incest and murder and wife-stealing that went on for four generations of Herods. It is kind of a reality show soap opera that is almost unbelievable. Which kind of brings us to the background of our story. If you were able to track with me regarding the Herodian dynasty, you may have noticed that, that Herodias in our passage is married to her uncle, Herod Antipas. Antipas stole Herodias from his half-brother Philip, her other uncle to whom she was actually married. This ended up creating a small war with the Arabian king, father of Antipas's first wife, whom he dumped when he stole Herodias from his half-brother. You see how the soap opera begins to unfold here? And the Roman army came in and he saved Antipas from military destruction. So there's all sorts of things going on with this adulterous, wife-stealing, incestuous family of Herods. And John the Baptist comes along and he preaches to the whole mess. He preaches against it all. The tense of the verb in our passage, verse 18, indicates that John had been repeatedly speaking to Herod Antipas about this. He repeatedly kept saying to him, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And that's why Herod Antipas finally got tired of it and threw him in jail. He was tired of being confronted about his sin. But he was too scared of John to have him killed. So he just threw him in jail. He knew he was a holy man, so he just threw him in jail. So John had quit preaching to him about what he'd done, stealing his brother's wife. Now why would John preach this to Herod? I mean, why, why, why would he even confront him like this? Because Herod the Great the and his descendants to follow had pretended to have converted to Judaism. And he was acting like this ruling king over Jewish people in his region. And John was a prophet. Jesus, when he was talking about his cousin John in Luke 7, he said to the people there, he said, when you went out to see John, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man clothed in soft clothing? A prophet? Yes, he said, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare my way before you. In other words, that was the forerunner of the Messiah, from a prophecy from Isaiah 40. And Jesus went on to say, For I say to you, he says, Among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. See, John was not only a prophet, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. So Jesus said, yes, he is a prophet, but he's even more than a prophet. He had a special task to announce my coming and prepare the way. And one of the assignments of the Old Testament prophet was to confront kings and rulers about their sin. You see that through the Old Testament. Samuel confronted King Saul. The prophet Nathan confronted King David. Elijah confronted King Ahab. Later on, the prophet Micaiah told King Ahab of his coming death on the battlefield. Isaiah told King Hezekiah to get his house in order. He was going to die. So John is simply fulfilling his role as an Old Testament prophet. He is, he is challenging the rulers of his land about their sin. And remember, the New Testament era did not technically begin until the cross. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. 
and the veil of the temple tore from top to bottom. That's when the Old Testament era ended, as the writer of Hebrews said, through the blood of Jesus there is now a new and living way to enter the holy place to approach God. So even though the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are placed in our New Testament, in our Bibles, everything is basically in the Old Testament era until the cross. So John is simply fulfilling his role as an Old Testament prophet. He's actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. Herod says he's a king over the Jews, and so John is a part of his prophetic position. He is confronting him about his open sin, his adulterous incest. Herod's half scared of him. He has him arrested and jailed, but he wouldn't kill him because he knew John was a holy man. But his niece... His live-in lover, his pretend wife, Herodias, had no such inhibitions. She desperately wanted to kill John. You see, her actual husband, Philip, lived in Rome as a private citizen. For some reason unknown to us, he had been disinherited from the Herodian dynasty. So when Antipas talked Herodias into running off with him and coming back to Israel, Herodias really went up in the world. Now she, now she gets to live like a queen in this mountaintop fortress palace with breathtaking views of the Dead Sea and the surrounding area. She wasn't about to give up her position of wealth and royalty to go back to Rome and live with her original husband, her other uncle, who she, she, had, she had married. So, so John is a thorn in her side, and she wants to shut him up for good lest he possibly convince Antipas to send her back to her, her actual husband, as John keeps telling him, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. He comes back a few weeks later, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And you know if you read anything about the brief ministry of John the Baptist, he did not cut corners. He wasn't politically correct. He just opened the oven door and gave them a blast. As he said to the Pharisees, you know, you're a bunch of snakes. You know, who, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, John, he just lowered, the, he was an Old Testament prophet, and he preached just like one. So he keeps coming to Herod Antipas, telling him this. Herod Antipas, he finally gets tired of it, throws him in jail, and Herodias is thinking, oh, I'd like to kill that guy. Because if he ever, if he ever convinces Antipas to send me back to Rome, it is going to be a real downer. I just want, I mean, look at this view of the Dead Sea and the surrounding area. I get to live like a queen and give orders. And, and I don't want to go back to Rome. So she absolutely hates John. Well, one day she gets her chance. Antipas, as we read, throwing a big birthday party for himself. This is not a family event. This is a men's event. You, you, you see that in verse, in verse 21. You see that all these, all these guys, he throws a feast for his nobles, the high officers, the chief men of Galilee. This isn't a family birthday party. This is a big men's event. The Jews didn't make much of birthdays, but the Romans did, especially the rich upper class. It was a great time to get drunk and chase women, and that's exactly what they did. So Antipas throws this big party, and, and as a part of the entertainment, his stepdaughter, his great niece, his half-brother's daughter comes in to do a dance. There's a lot of speculation as to exactly what this dance was. And the Bible does not specifically describe it, probably for good reason. 
The, the, the Jewish historian Josephus said that Herodias' daughter was named Salome, and based on the word for daughter and girl in verse 22, she would have been quite young. It's the same word that's used in, in, uh, back in uh, our last chapter for Jairus' daughter, who was 12. So what would a 12 to 14-year-old girl do for a dance is left to our speculation. But based on the decadence of the Roman culture, the dances of that day, and the ungodly immorality of the Herodian family, Bible students surmise that it was probably something akin to what we would call a belly dance combination striptease uh, performed by a young lady about middle school age. Herod Antipas, now undoubtedly impaired with alcohol, he makes this ridiculous offer I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He wasn't a king. He had no king to hit had no kingdom to give. He was a governor appointed by Caesar. So he, he wasn't a king of anything. But after his foolish, grandiose, half-drunk offer, Salome runs out to her mother. Hey, he said he'll give me anything. What should I ask for? And there's ah oh, yes, finally. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Antipas is too arrogant to admit his foolishness, too afraid to look bad in front of his men friends, the scripture says it. He felt bad about this, but because he made the oath and all his friends are sitting there looking at him, and they're all half drunk, he sends the order, all right. And the head of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament is delivered to wicked Herodias by the hand of her junior high school daughter. Could God have stopped it? Of course he could have, but he chose not to. God did not protect John from this injustice, despite Jesus describing his cousin as the greatest prophet. No one born of women greater than John. Yet after nearly a year in prison, he is beheaded as the result of a sexually charged dance of a young girl the half-drunk foolishness of an arrogant ruler who thinks he's more than he is, and a wicked, bitter woman determined to advance herself. So John is dead. His work is done. He went into his glorious eternal home, received his reward for faithful, uncompromising service to God. And the Jews who were at the party, these leading men of Galilee, supposedly, never protested at all. John was nothing to them. They had rejected the Messiah. The Herodian political party, as we saw a few chapters back, had already been conspiring with the Pharisees to kill Jesus. John doesn't matter anything for entertainment. Was it unjust? Absolutely. Was it wicked? Absolutely. Was it unfair? Absolutely. Yet it was the will of God for it to take place like this. As I said a moment ago, the wonderful grace and blessing of God surrounds us every day if we know Him as our Savior. But God does not protect us from everything. Sometimes hardship and injustice and heartache and loss are the design of God for us as a testimony to the world. And remember, this, this whole little story of John's murder, it's kind of the backstory to explain verses 14 to 16. Herod hears of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and he is afraid that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. 
Why would he be scared? Well, I'd be scared if the prophet had been coming blasting me about my immoral lifestyle, and so I have him beheaded, and then, and then a year later, all of a sudden, here's this guy acting like him. Oh no, maybe he's coming back. Maybe he's coming for me again. When Jesus was being tried by Pilate a number of months later, Herod Antipas happens to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, still trying to act like he's Jewish, even though he isn't. Pilate doesn't want to deal with Jesus, so he sends him down the road to Herod. And the scripture records, if we were to read that passage there of Jesus' trial, crucifixion, it records that Herod is happy to see him. Thought, why in the world would Herod be happy to see him? Well, I think two reasons. One, I think it's because first, once he sees Jesus face to face, he realizes that it isn't John the Baptist come back from the dead. I can sleep better now. This isn't really John. He's not coming for me. But then another thing that we see, he wants Jesus to do a miracle for him. Like it's, like it's some sort of entertainment. He is so crass and so wicked and so stuck on himself. He wants Jesus to give him a little entertainment here and perform a miracle for him. But Jesus at that trial, he, he won't even talk to Herod. He, he won't even speak in Herod's presence. So after Herod's men slap Jesus around a little bit, Herod sends him back to Pilate, who then gives the order for Jesus to be crucified. Herod and Pilate, a few years later, are both removed from their positions as governors, and they disappear from the pages of history. But Jesus? Well, you know the rest of that story. So what are we to learn from all of this? Two things. First of all this. Political corruption is as old as the world. Wicked immorality in high places is as old as the world. It shouldn't surprise us. And when we read the news and when we look at governments and our government and other places and we see some of the political corruption and absolutely wicked godlessness and we look with, with these horrifying thoughts, how could they do that? have been doing it for thousands of years. Herod did it 2,000 years ago. Our modern politicians, a bunch of them, are still doing it today. Political corruption is as old as the world, and wicked immorality in high places should not surprise us. Secondly, doing God's work doesn't always end in glory and praise in this world. It will result in blessing and reward when we are with the Lord, but there is no guarantee of that in this life. As we read in Romans 8, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Taking a stand for the truth can be costly. And doing God's work does not always end in glory and praise in this life. John languished away. The greatest prophet, Jesus said, who walked the earth. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The last of the Old Testament prophets. No man's ever been born of woman greater than, than, than John the Baptist. And yet he languishes in a filthy prison for a year. Then they march in one morning unexpected and lop off his head. And his, and his friends come and carry off his corpse and bury him. It seems so incredibly unjust. For your sake... We are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. An old-time hymn writer wrote the following poem, which was set to music. We've sung it over time. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? 
And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And may I leave you this morning with one of John the Baptist's most famous sayings. I'd like to show it to you in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. One of his most famous sayings, one of his most powerful sayings. Gospel of John, chapter 3. We won't read all of the backstory here, but, but what is going on is that Jesus and John wound up baptizing people in the same area. They were Jesus was baptizing people who were coming to, to hear him preach. John was baptizing people who were coming to hear, hear him preach. And they were in the same general area. And, and, and some of John's disciples come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they come, sorry, sorry, some of John's disciples come from the Lord Jesus Christ to John. And they say, hey, John, John, do you realize what's going on? This, your cousin Jesus, he's baptizing all these people and everybody's going to him. They're not coming to you anymore. They're all going to Him. And look what John says, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who, who, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And here's his statement, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great, famous word to remember John the Baptist by. He didn't say, oh yeah, my cousin, he's undercutting me, he's going behind my back, he's taking all my disciples, blah, 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 blah. He says to his disciples, this is the way it's supposed to work. I'm not the Christ. I just came to announce him. This is what's supposed to happen. And he says, he must increase. I must decrease. Reminded me of a when we had our grandkids a few weeks ago and had a little devotional time with them and we asked our 12-year-old grandson to pray. And he prayed, as he prayed, and he was praying about different things. And one statement that he said was John chapter 3 and verse 30 in a sense. He said, Lord, help us to be more like you and less like ourselves. I thought, oh, the kid's on a good track. I hope he stays there for the rest of his life. Lord, help us to be more like you. I pray, Lord, help me to be more like you and less like me. May you increase. May I decrease. May you become more in my life. May I become less in my life. May I be more concerned with what you want than what I want. May I be more concerned with your will than for my will. And may that be our motto for living. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask You to help us. We are weak. We are flawed. We have all kinds of faults. We have perpetual struggles with the flesh. We have struggles between Your will and our will, Your ways and our ways. And Lord, as we read this story of the murder of the greatest prophet, Jesus said, we just think how unjust, how horrifying these wicked, ungodly people just march in and behead the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. How, un, how unjust, how unfair for a great man of that caliber to die like that. And yet we know, Lord, that was your will, that was your design, that was your way. You've never promised to protect us from everything. But you have given us the hope of heaven, the confidence of glory with you one day. And Lord, as we work our way through all the troubles and trials and heartaches and difficulties of this old sin-cursed world, may we say, you must increase, but I must decrease. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.